Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we get to talk to an innovator who's changing the field of female sexual health. Daphne Chen is the co-founder of TBD Health, an at-home screening platform for sexually transmitted infections made for women. Chen pursued her undergraduate degree at Princeton and received her MBA from the University of Pennsylvania. Daphne Chen is utilizing her skill set from her previous strategy consultant and product management job at McKenzie and Amazon, applying them to encourage women to take care of their own health. TBD Health provides seamless, user-friendly, at-home testing for STIs, while also destigmatizing STIs and empowering women with knowledge to take care of their sexual wellness. The focus of TBD Health is to provide an inclusive, engaging, and empowering care, and to bust myths about STIs and sexual wellness. Daphne, it's great to have you on this morning. We're super excited to learn about your journey in building TBD Health and your advice for entrepreneurs who are seeking to disrupt women's health. Take us to the beginning. Can you tell us a bit about TBD Health and what led you to start it? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. The background behind TBD is really just a very personal story. So I started it with a really good friend of mine, Stephanie Esty. We've known each other for over 12 years at this point, And we met in our early 20s, right out of college in New York. And we have just seen each other through a lot of ups and downs in our sexual health journeys in that time. So we're in our early thirties now, and that's over 10 years of dating and sex and sexual health. Um, I remember turning to her when I went to the gynecologist and asked for an IUD and the gynecologist refused to give me one because she didn't approve of the fact that I was dating actively and not in a long-term relationship. And I remember she told me to go and find a long-term boyfriend and come back. And I remember just thinking, how I just felt so alienated. I felt misunderstood. I felt dismissed. I was 24 at the time. And it was one of the first times that I had really worked with a gynecologist. And I think Stephanie and I have both had so many experiences like this, that it really galvanized us to create a better solution for women where they could be more active participants in their own healthcare, where they could find a sexual health provider that doesn't make them feel judged or stigmatized for their lifestyle choices. And that's something that we've just gotten really passionate about and wanted to create a platform that was a safe space for women to come and ask the questions that they might have and to seek the care that they need in order to live a fulfilling sex life. So that's the story behind TBD. It's definitely much needed, but very challenging to operate in indications that have so much stigma. I think, you know, we have mental health, we have sexual health. What would you advise, you know, entrepreneurs who are trying to disrupt these spaces while trying to tackle this implicit taboo and stigma, you know, when they're building their company? Yeah, so... For me, my background is in product, and I think I always go back to the user and what do they need? What, what's going to work for them? And so you kind of start from the user's experience and their problems and you work backwards. And like I think for me, with stigma, it just requires you to be a lot more creative in terms of how you get the word out to people. You can't necessarily just rely on tried and true channels like Facebook and Instagram. You might have 
issues, kind of even creating ads. We run into this actually ourselves in terms of just getting ads posted on those platforms because there, there, there are moderation, content moderation rules that kind of restrict you from being able to talk about sex and sexual health. So for us, it was really about how do we engage this audience in a way that feels intimate and safe without kind of leveraging some of these very broad access tools. And I think we found that building a direct relationship one-on-one through kind of mechanisms like we have a book club that we've created. We call it Sexy Book Club, where we gather together. We all read a book together around the theme of sex and sexual health. And we discuss kind of personally, it's kind of how you would form relationships in real life, right? You go one by one, you get to know a person and their individual requirements and their experience. And that kind of lends itself to word of mouth and people want to tell their friends. A lot of women have conversations with their friends and their network kind of behind closed doors because these aren't topics that were kind of, that are kind of widely discussed in society. So we tap into those networks and I think that's been really effective for us to date. But I do think that more broadly platforms like Facebook and Instagram have to get more comfortable with the conversation around sexual health because it's actually limiting people from learning about sexual health in a way that actually limits their ability to seek the care that they need. And it all ties back to the fact that sexual education in the U.S. is so limited and in many cases is so inadequate. And I think we shouldn't be relying on these social media platforms to do the job of educating women about their bodies. But it is a place where people gather. And I think we're really trying to work with them to help them understand like what we're doing is providing healthcare services. We're not here to titillate anybody. We're not here to kind of create erotic discussions, even though I do think there should be a place for that on the internet as well. So I think you start with the user and you start with individual women. You work with them to understand their issues and then word of mouth kind of cascades from there. In terms of the offerings and how the platform works, we'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So our initial product is an at-home STI screening experience. And so you go online, you order a kit based on whatever your specific needs are. Right now, we have two kits on the market, one of which is called the Check Yourself Out Kit, which tests you for five major STIs, including chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomoniasis, HIV, and syphilis. And our other kit is called the Fertility Defense, which is a trio of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomoniasis, which we put together specifically because these are the three STIs that contribute most to infertility for women. And a lot of people don't realize that STIs are actually the number one preventable cause of infertility in the United States. And so we have the ability to test for other um, other tests like hepatitis B and hepatitis C, for instance, um, and we're able to create custom kits for you if you need. But those are the two kits we launched our pilot with earlier this year. And so you go online, you choose the one that you need that's best for you, and you can select the cadence that's most appropriate for you too. So if you need a one-off kit, you can, you can do that. Or if a subscription is appropriate for you, say you're actively dating and need a screening every six months or every three months, we can help you set a subscription up as well. And so the kit comes to your house. It takes less than 10 minutes to collect a sample. And so typically speaking, we ask for either a vaginal swab sample if you're a vagina owner or a urine sample if you're not and a small finger prick blood sample. So we leverage finger prick lancets, which are similar to the lancets that a diabetic uses to test themselves daily for insulin. And we collect a few drops of blood from that. And then we're able to run all the panels that we need off of those two samples for these two kits. 
I think the most special thing about what we've built is that we've also created a clinical experience where you can engage with our clinicians through telemedicine in a way that feels a lot more personal. So a lot of women are only seeing their gynecologist maybe 15 minutes every year. And if you're just going to a lab to get tested, you're engaging with like lab techs and eight different people who might be handling your samples, but not really able to have a full conversation with them about your sexual health and your sexual history. And so we've trained our entire clinical team to practice trauma-aware care. They're practicing gender-inclusive care. It's really, we like to call it a retraining program because it's not really education that you get at nursing school or at med school. And so we're really excited about the fact that they're so clued into the sensitive needs around sexual health care, that they're able to have those conversations in a way that's non-judgmental, that's, that's focused on compassion and is going to be about shared decision-making. So making sure that your patient is a part of the decisions that you're making for them on behalf of their health. That's, that's kind of the general experience. And then if you need follow-up care, say you need medication, our clinical team can provide prescriptions for you. We can also even do expedited partner therapy in most states so that your partner can get a preemptive prescription and in case you have a positive result. And they're always available for consultations. And we have a messaging platform that we've built in-house because we've seen a lot of the EMR tools out there and a lot of them are really clunky, both for the provider and for the patient. And so we built our own system where we took first principles from Gmail. And so it's as easy to message your clinician as it is to write an email. I think for us, it's been a really powerful tool just to watch the conversations kind of unfold and the deep relationships that our clinicians are building with their patients. That's amazing. One logistical question, how do you go about sourcing clinicians and making sure they're not clinicians who might pass judgment or kind of alluding to your past experiences with a remote platform and a lot of these conversations are confidential. How do you ensure that the patient is having that quality experience? Yeah, recruiting is a really important step in the process for us in terms of building the right clinical care team that shares our values as a company. And it starts with the job description and just making sure that we're ultra clear about what we're expecting our clinical team to be able to provide in terms of care. And then during the interview process, we do a lot of role play. And I think that's actually been incredibly helpful is just getting a feel for how clinicians might handle situations that come up that may or may not align with their personal views about sex. And I think it's made a huge difference. The role play, and we'll have several people do it. We'll put them through a loop of interviews where we have multiple people with different backgrounds come in and ask them to role play scenarios. And I think that's been an incredibly helpful way of filtering for the right talent, for the right clinicians for us. And then training isn't just a one-time thing for us. Clinical team gets training on an ongoing basis. And so that's in the format of a few different things, including brown bag lunches where we'll have an expert come in. We can do a Q&A session over lunch, or we'll have someone who has a very particular experience that we want to dive into, especially for certain marginalized groups that we bring in. So for instance, we had a lunch session a few weeks ago with a sex worker who came in and talked a lot about her experiences working within the healthcare system and finding it really hard to find a healthcare provider that would take her seriously and dug into that a little bit. And I think we all learn something from these sessions, not just the clinical team, but that's something that I think we've been really stressing. It's been working so far. 
Thanks for sharing that. Another question we were curious to know more about is as a co-founder, as kind of the lead of this organization, you're wearing so many different hats. You're likely managing people, you're assessing the product and its quality, you're raising funds. Tell us about a regular day as a co-founder of TBD. I'm not sure the notion of a regular day really exists within entrepreneurship, especially at an early stage as where we are. But the way that we operate is so Stephanie and I are co-founders. We have a third co-founder, Sherwin, who is our technical lead. And so the three of us have the areas that we've carved out for ourselves. I'm, for instance, working on the product and tech side of things. And so I make sure that what we're building is something that's appropriate and meets the needs of our, our users and our patients. And that's from the platform to building the at-home experience to the clinic that we're actually launching in Vegas in December this month, actually in a couple of weeks. And Stephanie is our marketing and brand guru. And she also has a legal background. And so she's legal counsel as well and, and our regulatory expert. And Sherwin is our technical genius. And he's the one who's responsible for building our entire platform. So if you look at it from a functional area perspective, we have clear lanes. But on a day-to-day basis, we're talking about like so many different things kind of together. I guess I would say we wake up early and the first thing we do is check in on our customers. And so we have orders out. We want to make sure our customers have visibility into where their test is in the pipeline in terms of has it reached the lab or not. We check in with our labs often to make sure that things are being processed on schedule. We'll take a bunch of meetings depending on where we are in the cycle for fundraising. We're meeting with a bunch of investors. We're meeting with our partners. And so we have a pretty heavy partnership focused strategy. And then weekly we meet with our team. We do a full team meeting every Tuesday where we talk about where we are as a business from a high level strategy perspective. We give everybody the ability to ask questions. And I think one of the things we really pride ourselves on is our clinical team is a part of our strategy. We don't leave them to be siloed in their corner managing patients. We actually include them in the way that we think about our business roadmap. And then Stephanie and I are basically talking every hour, (laughs) depending on what what it might be. Maybe it's we're drafting a press release and we need to give thoughts on it, or we're doing a budget review, or we're interviewing contractors for this or that. So yeah, it's, it's really hard to summarize. I would just say every day is a little bit different and that's the only constant. Were you able to translate any skills that you had learned from either previous jobs or education in your efforts into diving into entrepreneurship? We know that a lot of things happen on the fly and that you have to learn skills as you go. But do you look back on your trajectory prior to this and you're like, oh, I'm really glad that this was something I had in my pocket? Yeah, I didn't really feel ready to be an entrepreneur until a few years ago. I spent a lot of my 20s just figuring out what I wanted to learn and then exploring different paths for myself. And then I ended up at Amazon after business school and loved my experience there. And most recently before TBD, I was on the product management team for Alexa. And it was like being an entrepreneur inside Amazon's walls because we were developing a whole new category. We're talking about voice forward experiences that just didn't exist before. And it really stoked my interest in building something that was so meaningful to people and can kind of change the way people live their daily lives. And I think it really gave me great tools for how to build a product that people love 
from the ground up and the process of putting a proposal together, getting buy-in, getting it funded, building a team, and then building the product and then launching the product and then getting users for the product was something I got to see the entire life cycle of working within Amazon. And that was incredibly helpful education for being an entrepreneur. So after that, yeah, I I remember thinking, I get how it works. Now it's about personal risk and like, is it something that I feel ready for at this time in my life? And the answer was yes. And I'm very fortunate that Stephanie's answer was yes at the same time. So I think it's been extraordinarily helpful. That's awesome to hear. And did you have any mentors that were able to guide you through this process? So many. I think entrepreneurship is only really feasible if you have a million people kind of pulling for you and supporting you. And uh, we've been fortunate to have mentors, both big and small. So we have amazing advisors on board with DBD, including Ben Kogan. He was the co-founder, co-CEO at Hubble Contacts. We have Melinda Lee, who was the former chief creative officer at BuzzFeed and who's been incredibly helpful in terms of thinking through our content strategy. We've had folks from our past lives be incredibly helpful. For instance, my former skip level at Amazon is now the chief technology officer at Glossier and just being able to pick her brain about things. And we've had so many conversations along the way with folks and might've been one or two conversations, but they've changed the way that we think about our company and that's been helpful too. In terms of your position within the company, how do you try to embody yourself as the leader of the team with your other co-leaders as well, and also giving voice to the people who work with you? Yeah, I think you have to be really intentional about creating a culture from the beginning. It gets harder and harder to try and implement after the fact. And it's also just going to serve dividends in terms of employee retention and just making sure that you have a team in place that's as passionate about the mission as you are. And so Stephanie and I had a lot of conversations in the beginning about what kind of culture we wanted to espouse as we were building TBD. And that allowed us to be more intentional about who we hired. And then it also allowed us to be more intentional about the mechanisms we put in place for team building. We've had zero retention on the employee side since we started this company. And I think it's just really a testament to the fact that we have put in the legwork kind of ahead of time to make sure we had core tenants and values outlined. And it's something that we refer to over and over again. This is also something I learned from Amazon. The leadership principles were invoked pretty much at every turn. I think I can name them all still. I think there were 14 of them. And that's something that really carries through your work, even at a very granular level. So, and we're constantly revising. That's the other thing. We're both really invested in making sure that our company culture is evolving and getting smarter and getting more inclusive even as we go. For so many of our listeners who may not yet be ready to jump into this entrepreneurship experience, but really have that in mind, do you have any suggestions for people who are transitioning from a more structured job to going into entrepreneurship? People will tell you that it's going to be totally ambiguous and you have to be ready for a lot of uncertainty, but it's nothing like actually experiencing it. And so I I actually think for a lot of people doing the legwork up front, talking to as as many entrepreneurs as you can and understanding that there's a big difference between a seed stage company and a series A company even, or a series B company is really helpful before you kind of take the leap. I think a lot of people who have never worked at a startup don't understand that even amongst the different raises, there's a different risk 
profile to that startup. And so it can really make a difference in terms of how you think about your own trajectory. If you're joining a seed stage startup, you're looking at a much longer road, depending on what your goals are. If you're there to build something amazing, then that can carry you through. But if you're there for an exit, it's going to be a little while. So you can't really know everything ahead of time. You really just have to do it. You have to be open to possibilities, but it's really starting from, do you really know what you want out of that journey? Do you really understand why you want to be an entrepreneur? Because if you're just looking for a fat paycheck fast, folks with that kind of motivation tend to be the ones that burn out of entrepreneurship the quickest because it's simply not uh, lasting enough to get you through all the hard times. The other thing I would say is build a network of allies ahead of time. You can be doing that no matter what job you're in and be constantly talking to entrepreneurs and be constantly thinking about what really gets you excited that you could spend your entire life mornings, nights, and weekends thinking about because that's really going to be the most important factor. Talking about Lowe's, I'm sure there are a lot of competitors and folks who are trying to do similar things in terms of at-home lab testing, maybe tackling the stigma of sexual health and improving accessibility to those resources. What's your general approach to competitors in your space? You know, women's health and sexual health has been so underserved for so long that I don't really think about it as competition. I think about it as we're all trying to solve the problem of accessibility and the problem of high quality health care for women and, and for folks looking for sexual health care. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. We're all going to have different strengths. I think it's a reality that there needs to be more service providers and that customer choice is only a good thing. Now, I will say, I think since 2014, when I would say the first few at-home testing startups really started cropping up, there has been an evolution in terms of how we think about what the patient experience needs to be in order to result in positive health outcomes. So the initial wave of these startups really focused on convenience, which makes a lot of sense because one of the biggest pain points when it comes to testing is that it is so inconvenient and it is so alienating to go and ask for a test. And on average, it takes women 28 days to make a gynecologist appointment in order to get the screening that they need. So accessibility and convenience being the first problem that we solve makes a ton of sense. And I think some companies have done a really great job of that. But there is a much more complex and nuanced road ahead in terms of getting to a place where health outcomes are positively impacted and where telemedicine is truly the front door for handling a lot of these conditions. And so merging that, the convenience of an at-home test with quality care that's delivered at scale through telemedicine is still something that I think the, the market needs and that's something that we're looking to provide. So there's a ton of room. And I think a, a lot of women are really excited about the fact that we're building for the patient, we're building for the consumer instead of building for the healthcare industry. That's so, so helpful and, and very inspiring. We had a guest from a company called Natalist who are really dedicated to improving this journey of conception and fertility that shares that same sentiment that it's a matter of offering many solutions to solve many issues within women's health. And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have an assortment of many options. A few more logistical questions, which we went into initially in our conversation, but as far as the kits themselves, could you speak to your relationship with scientists and achieving you know, clinical efficacy in the process of building TBD health? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it starts with really just copying to the fact that my co-founder Stephanie and I are not scientists and we're not medical folks, right? We brought on advisors early on that are skilled in those areas. And so one of whom is Dr. Steven Spitalnik, who runs all 22 of Columbia University's clinical labs, as well as Christine Johnston, who is a doctor with the University of Washington's virology lab. And so we talked to them at length before we started anything to really understand what should we be looking for in a lab partner? How do we make sure that the lab testing that we're providing is meeting a high enough bar in terms of reliability before we launch our product? And so we had a lot of discussions about sensitivity and specificity being the two main metrics that we look at when it comes to assessing the validity of a lab test. And then we went on a hunt for the right lab partner and that took us months. We spent a lot of conversations just asking them, how does it work? Let's understand the the risks around at-home testing and what are some of the vulnerabilities we'll need to make sure that we address either in the supply chain or with user compliance. One of the reasons that our kit itself is so specifically designed is because the number one thing a patient needs to feel when going through this kit is that they're doing it right for a few different reasons. One, because it's going to be important for the reliability of the result. But two, it also helps you build confidence that you're doing it right and you don't have to wonder, like, did I do the sample collection correctly? Am I being confused as part of that process is not helpful to anybody. And so we did over 20 iterations in terms of designs and wireframing and put it in front of a lot of patients just to make sure if you were going to do this to yourself at home, like, is this going to be something you can do repeatedly with high confidence? And so, yeah, I think... The science of it is pretty well understood. These lab tests have been developed for a few decades at this point. So we're not developing new science. That was not our goal. Our goal is to create a user experience that actually makes it possible and pleasurable for for people to be able to do this kind of testing at home at the cadence that they need. As far as the regulatory process, you did allude to, you know, this is not new, but are there certain entities you have to present the test to and provide data in order to achieve discredibility for a user? What is that process like? So every lab partner we onboard is CAP and CLIA approved. So CAP and CLIA are kind of the two certifications that a lab needs in order to meet laboratory standards in the U.S., So that's kind of the primary qualification that we look for in a lab beyond some of the business metrics that we look at around what are your turnaround times? What's your capacity in terms of sample processing? So CAP and CLIA is absolutely kind of required for us. Now, when it comes to providing clinical care, you probably know, but there are different regulations in different states for what you need to have as a business in order to be able to provide clinical care, especially telemedical clinical care. For instance, in some states, nurse practitioners can practice independently. And in other states, there's a requirement for physician oversight. So you need a physician set up by something called a professional corp that effectively acts like the subsidiary to your company. And then they are the ones that kind of manage the clinical team, the nurse practitioners in other states and have oversight over the main processes for us, which would be lab requests and prescription writing. So we have to be very intentional about where our footprint is going to be and when. And I think that's something that is also always changing. So especially with COVID over the last two years, we've seen more of a broadening in terms of telemedicine being accepted in more nurse practitioners, independent practice states lighting up. So we're constantly keeping an eye on that. I was curious about 
the pilot testing process and how that went about? I know you mentioned a few times how your entire approach is very patient-centered. So I was wondering if you could share any remarkable feedback that you got from users in their first tries and their experience and how that shaped the subsequent development of the product. It's been one of the most gratifying parts of this process is actually seeing the difference that we're making to patients' lives. One of the pieces of feedback that stuck out most really early on when we launched our pilot was we had a patient tell us that this experience was her moment of self-care for the day. And I think that's exactly what we want women to feel. That was our intention with building this experience is that it shouldn't feel stigmatizing and scary or like a high stakes clinical event. It should feel like a moment of self-care and uh, a way for you to feel like you're taking care of your body. So that was incredibly rewarding to hear. And I think we've been hearing that over and over again from different patients. How that changes subsequent development of our product and our roadmap. We have a product council that we've set up with users where we will test different ideas with them. We'll source different ideas with them in terms of understanding what are some of the things that you need from a sexual health perspective that you feel like your needs aren't being met today by the healthcare industry. It might be things like sex coaching, which is something we hear about a lot, actually. There are a lot of questions that women have about sex and about sexual health and how how it relates to them and their bodies and how they think and feel about their bodies and their partners that we can really serve with sex coaching and having those experts on board. So that's something that we're looking into now. But beyond that, it's really just kind of constantly getting their feedback on how easy was it for you to do this screening? How easy was it for you to engage with our clinical care team? And those will be tweaks or feature updates that we might make to the platform. Actually, one of the first pieces of feedback that we got was around, I want to be able to share my results with my partner in a safe and secure way. And if you think about it, the way that a lot of people do this today, the status quo has been you take a screenshot of your PDF and you send it to your partner, or you might show them a hard copy because that's what the clinic has given you. And there are a number of reasons why that's not ideal, including one, you don't want your personal health information floating around the internet potentially. And two, it doesn't give you a ton of control over the narrative around your results. And so we created a results sharing experience where we provide abstracted results data that you can send via an exploding link to whoever you want. Well, maybe that's a sexual partner. They can access it and then you get a log of every time they've accessed your health results. And so in it being abstracted, it basically just says that you were positive or you were negative and your, your screening was cleared. And then it's up to you to share the level of detail that you're most comfortable with, with your partner. And for you to have control over the conversation around, I was positive for X, here's, here, you know, here's what happened and here's how I'm thinking about it. And we also will provide suggestions for how to start that conversation with a partner as well. Um, and I think that was one of the most tangible features that we built based off of user feedback. As a follow-up to that, I was wondering, how do you ensure that your product is able to reach the hands of people who have been traditionally marginalized and maybe incorporating those voices also into this community of people that you're able to access frequently and ask questions? Because we know that depending on communities, the needs might differ. And how do we make sure that there's something for everyone? So one of the things that we're really focused on is thinking about how to make our experience more accessible. And we're doing that in a few ways. So one, we're only available in six states today. And so that was our pilot. We launched in six states. We really wanted to stay close to our users to make sure that we were building something that was making a meaningful difference to their healthcare. 
And so expanding is obviously kind of the next next thing that we'd like to do is making sure that there's more coverage across more states in the U.S. And then looking to things like insurance coverage, Medicaid coverage, in order to kind of plug into some of the tools that people are already using in order to fund their healthcare. For us, we are currently able to take HSA, FSA payments, and we're also able to create super bills for people who need to, who would like to take their results and see if they can get it covered out of network. But being plugged into major plans will be something that's important for getting the broadest coverage possible and Medicaid as well. We also think about inclusivity within sexual health care is one of our biggest missions as a company. I think a lot of women and people with vaginas don't necessarily feel like they have access to care in their area. So there's a shortage of OBGYNs in the United States, and this has created reproductive health deserts in many places. And the data suggests that if you don't, as a woman or a person with a vagina, if you don't live within seven square miles of a sexual health clinic, you're unlikely to seek care that year. So being an at-home protocol, we're hoping that that's a a much easier way for women to stay up to date on their screenings because it'll come to you instead of having to have you do the scheduling and the rigmarole of trying to find a provider. So yeah, I think coverage is a good place to start. Shifting focus a little bit, we wanted to talk a little bit about the femtech industry or women's health and innovation. People have different preferences for how to call it, but what are you excited about? There has been increased support and investment in in this area, and I I think that's great. I think there's a lot of work to be done still in terms of creating more opportunities for healthcare services, for wellness services that impact women and people with vaginas primarily. I see a lot of focus on fertility over the last few years, and I think that that is great because there is a ton of innovation and work that needs to be done in terms of making those services more acceptable. I was at Amazon when they first launched their employee benefit for egg freezing. And that was like 2018. It was very recent. But I do think the saturation of support in fertility means that there's a ton of other areas within sexual health that that aren't given as much attention. And conflating women's health with fertility is problematic in and of itself. And one of the reasons that we're excited about sexual health is that it's something that stays with you your entire life. So for us, it's really important to build a service for women to evolve with them as their sex life evolves. We see ourselves as a life cycle company for sexual health, but within women's health in the market, we've seen a lot of focus on fertility. We've seen a lot of focus on increasing focus on menopause, which I think is great. Um, And we think there's just much more room to grow into other areas. We wanted also to ask you about your experience pitching to investors and if you had any tips for our listeners. We know that, especially when talking about sexual health, a topic that is taboo, these environments are often male-dominated, so it's maybe hard to talk about some of these issues that are primarily affecting people who don't necessarily um, look like them. I think the best advice I can give is to not make it an issue. And in not making it an issue, you don't allow investors to get uncomfortable. So originally we had a lot of discussions about we're going to be saying vagina and we're going to be talking about sexual health. We're going to be talking about anal sex, like quite a lot in in this pitch. And we were like, maybe we have to set it up and like do a disclaimer to make people less uncomfortable. But I think what we realized is, no, this is a fact of life. And we're talking about healthcare here. At the end of the day, what everybody needs to recognize and remember is that this is about healthcare. 
And so whether or not someone is uncomfortable is something that we expect them to cross that hurdle quickly <laughs> in the pitch. So, and it's also actually a really good test of whether or not this fund or this partner is going to be a good partner for us as a business. So we kind of just talk about it factually. There's no titillation here. I love that mentality, Daphne. Thank you so much for sharing. It's a huge challenge, but it's a matter of positioning and communicating the thesis that it is healthcare we're talking about. I wanted to thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. A couple last questions. What would you say has been kind of the low point of TBD health? We often don't dwell on the lows. I think the the thing that has been the biggest bummer throughout this process is building a company throughout a pandemic means that you have a lot fewer in-person touch points with your team. Yeah. And so really building a team that is remote and cultivating that culture and building strong team identity uh, through Zoom is a challenge. And it's a challenge to maintain, but it's also kind of proven how resilient we can be as a team because we do feel so connected, even though we're so far. For sure. What has been the highest high? Uh, Talking to our first few customers. Just seeing that it's the thing that you've been building for so long is in the wild. And now you're getting feedback from people whose lives are materially impacted by the service that you're providing. That is the highest high. And I think we're really excited about the fact that we're getting a response that we were always hoping for. And what's, what's TBD for TBD health? (laughs) So we are launching our first in-person care hub in Las Vegas. It will be open to the public in January of 2022. So if anybody is going to be there for CES, please stop by. We'll give you a tour of the space and you can meet our incredible clinical care team. And beyond that, we're, we're building more products. We're expanding and we've got some really exciting partnerships lined up. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, theahc.org, to donate.